Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, the Mosaic Law. What someone has taken from you, you have the right to take back. For better and worse, this principle has undergirded much of human history since it was first inscribed thousands of years ago. And even though more recent philosophies of justice have sought to revise it, to amend it, or to dispense with it altogether, still survives. We recognize it instinctively. It's woven into us from our earliest days, from the first time someone pushed us over in the sandbox and we pushed back. It's a principle that underpins the story of Helen Spence, a young woman from Arkansas who saw her father murdered in cold blood right before her eyes back in the early 1930s. Sometimes I ask myself what I would do if I saw a loved one killed in front of me, how I would react, both in the moment or in the days and weeks following. That it's never happened, I'm grateful. But Helen Spence never asked herself that question at all. She knew exactly what she would do. Today on Crime Capsule, we're kicking off a series on remarkable women in true crime history. Women whose courageous acts, whose defiant spirits, whose extraordinary lives have left indelible marks on those around them. Who, as we read their stories, leave those marks on us and on our understanding of law, order, and justice today. Joining us is Denise Parkinson, author of Daughter of the White River. Depression-Era Treachery and Vengeance in the Arkansas Delta, published by the History Press. I won't mince words. This is a story of water that runs as thick as blood. Denise, thank you so much for joining us here on Crime Capsule. Thank you for having me. Take us to... Arkansas in the 1910s and the 1920s, one of the poorest states in one of the poorest regions of the country. But you portray the natural state, as it's nicknamed, 
as far richer on the ground than anyone might have imagined. Why is that? Well, I think of Arkansas as kind of like the Ukraine of America because we're the breadbasket, self-sufficient people, uh, artisans, artists, people who love nature. Uh, The river people in particular were very matriarchal at a time when that word was probably not even used. For example, there were no such things as bastards on the river. They were called wood woods cults, and they would be adopted if it was a, a child born out of wedlock. There was no stigma attached to the mother at all, no stigma to the child, to the father. The baby was adopted, which I consider very uh, matriarchal. I've been calling the river people an indigenous culture because it seems to be a bridge culture between indigenous and colonialist. And because of the self-sufficiency and the pioneering aspect of the settlers in eastern Arkansas, in the Delta, and on the White River, they had everything they needed. I keep thinking that if James Agee had gone a little bit further west when he was researching Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, he would have found a paradise where people were still able to feed themselves even during the Great Depression. You know, one of the first characters that we meet in your account is not Helen Spence or her father, Cicero, but the White River. Tell us about the White. Well, when I was a child, every summer we would go to my great-grandmother's houseboat, which was on the levee at Clarendon. And because my maiden name is White, I thought it was my river. As a child, you know, kid logic. And it is the longest river in Arkansas. It's seven hundred over 700 miles. It goes up into Missouri and then comes back down diagonally. And then it joins the Mississippi and the Arkansas River at a place called River's End. So it's a very uh, Arkansas waterscape because there were houseboats and communities all up and down the White River before the dams were put in and the Corps of Engineers basically occupied the river. When roughly did the houseboat uh, sort of style of living or communities, when when did those get formed originally? I haven't been able to find out because I started this research back when you were writing your book, your first book, I think, Over 10 years ago, I looked at archives at UCA. There were houseboats in the 19-teens. Before 1920, there were houseboats on the Washita River. I interviewed a descendant of a houseboat family whose houseboat was actually photographed. It's in our film on the Arkansas River at Little Rock in 1918. So... I'm thinking, based on the age of our houseboat, it was obviously, it was not so much a vernacular structure as it was indicative of an earlier architectural period from the late 1800s. And living that close to nature and on the river, especially in the summer times as a child, 
It was the most free and wonderful and beautiful experience that I ever had in my life. It was the happiest time of my life. And so I can imagine how happy Helen Spence must have been growing up. You know, this is a very Southern story. Um, One of the early scenes takes place at a sorghum harvest where uh, men and women are out uh, cutting and boiling cane to make uh, molasses. You have the seasons of your story revolving totally around agriculture and what is being sown or produced or harvested. Um, You have these sort of reunion festivals in the autumn, which bring together the entire community for days on end. I mean, you were writing about your home here, aren't you? Absolutely. I've been to Sorghum Harvest. There's still a family just southeast of here near Curtis, Arkansas, that It's a tradition. It's still ongoing. I've been to a demonstration of a sorghum harvest at the in Mount Ida, which is further west of Hot Springs. And these were just opportunities for people to come together. And when Mr. Brown, Mr. L.C. Brown, who I interviewed at length for his memories of the White River, he conveyed such an air of just festivity and joy and multi-generational enjoyment. And at the same time, they were getting things done. It was a cooperative type situation. And that's why Arkansas overcame a lot during the Great Depression, because there were cooperatives. I'm talking about off the river, but cooperatives did help people survive then. Cooperative canning, cooperatives, uh, you know, Pecan shelling cooperatives, uh, quilt quilt and uh, uh, bedspread, chenille bedspread. I interviewed a family that had been a member of a chenille bedspread cooperative during the Great Depression. They had beautiful, beautiful fabric art. I love molasses, too. It's my favorite thing for a biscuit. (laughs) Yep, I go cornbread, but no, I hear you. I hear you. Um, I think we can uh, oh, happily, really? happily share the love on that. I have to try oh, that. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, let me ask you in in your descriptions of this community, I thought that your account, say for instance, of the mussel farmers along the White River, was just extraordinary. You know, these kind of uh, depictions of men wearing old. Uh, helmets made out of old Model T engine blocks going down onto the riverbank and sort of feeling blindly for the muscles by hand. I mean, it, it's almost a kind of um, sort of primeval way of living, isn't it? I mean, it's just there's there, you are directly at the mercy of the elements in everything that you do and, and the sort of the mortal risk posed by living along this riverbank. Uh, is it's very real. It's lived, isn't it? Absolutely. And I have seen these helmets in area museums. There's a, a good example of one in the Desert Museum. And it's amazing the amount of uh, just artisanship to take and repurpose something that was from an automobile. And then that becomes your diving helmet. And they would pump the air through a just a hose. <laughs> so it was very, uh, I would say earthy, but it was watery. And the thing about the muscles is, imagine what our world would look like if you took out 
all the plastic buttons that have been made since the 1940s and 50s. It was post-war plastic. Before that, Arkansas whitewater mother-of-pearl buttons, they supplied the entire U.S. Army. So that's a lot of buttons. So I've become somewhat of a button collector, and they're beautiful mother-of-pearl buttons. I make things out of them now. The reason I ask about the river is because you describe a tension which is central to understanding what happened back in the 1930s in this area. And, and that notion is what you call river justice. And you contrast river justice with the laws and the society of the drylanders. Help yes, us to understand the that tension. The phrase river justice was spoken to me a lot by a lot of different river people that I interviewed. And Mr. Brown, whose life story is also included in the book because he was Helen's little buddy, um, he was in a an amazing position to observe both sides because his father was the only deputy sheriff that the river people trusted. So Elsie saw mm-hmm. uh, drylander justice and he saw river justice and his dad understood it as well. And I think that the mm-hmm. only reason that Helen was subjected to what she was subjected to was because she was so fearless that she stood up in the courtroom and enacted her vengeance, her river justice. It was basically an eye for an eye. If you killed someone's family member, then you were either going to have to leave the river or be under that that target for vengeance. What happened to Helen afterward when she was in the hands of the justice system was not, it was the opposite of justice. I recall a couple of instances in which you write there were some murders that had taken place downstream, and yet there weren't really, in, there weren't really many investigations. You, uh, you sort of had these things happen and things went quiet. And the notion that was sort of floated around was, well, they probably had it coming anyway. They, they needed it to be killed, as the saying went. Well, they, that was another phrase that people from the river tended to use was, well, he needed killing. And I'm thinking, oh, I get it now. Because I look at Putin. <laughs> I'm like, somebody needs killing. <laughs> Let's meet some of these people. You grew up in this area. You had heard of this case, but it wasn't until you met Elsie Brown that the story really opened up for you. So tell us about Elsie. Well, I had been trying to research my own family's multiple losses after two of our houseboats were destroyed by the government. My great-grandmother was basically left homeless, and she ended up in a nursing home, which I I hate nursing homes, but I was too young to to take care of her myself. And that stuck with me. I couldn't find anything in the history books, encyclopedias, and someone at, with the Hot Springs Documentary Festival alerted me to a river man living in Hot Springs who knew a lot about the White River. So I just looked him up in the phone book, and he was in his mid-80s. And I introduced myself, and we just started hanging out. I would 
we would meet for brunch or I would go over <laughs> to his house or we would just hang out and he would talk and I would take notes. And sometimes I'd type while he was talking and got yeah. a little video of him. And it was just the most wonderful friendship. And I'm wonderful uh, friends with his family, his granddaughter. Uh, he was just a wonderful man. And he always wanted Helen's story to become a movie. So I hope he's looking down because we are working on that. And he did love the book. He enjoyed mm. coming to uh, book events. And uh, he passed away in 2015. But he was like a grandfather to me. I mean, he had quite a childhood, uh, you write, that uh, not only had he known Helen from his boyhood and um, had been friends with her, but as, as a child, he had a wolf pup for a pet. Yes. And when we were working on the book, uh, one night he couldn't sleep. He told me this the next day. He said, last night I could not sleep, and I went out onto the back porch and looked up, and there was a, there was a conjunction, a planetary conjunction with a full moon. And I don't remember. This was years ago. And he said, because we were working on that chapter about his memories of Wolf and how he would go to check his traps and Wolf would come with him and Wolf would walk him to school. And it was just amazing. He was missing Wolf. And he said he walked out onto the porch. It was two o'clock in the morning and he looked up at the moon and he said, I, I miss you, Wolf. And all of a sudden he heard a, a howl. So let's meet Helen, our, our heroine, our femme fatale. Uh, she occupies many roles. You know, as I was reading your your account of her, um, we have a phrase in Mississippi, which is that, you know, she's a pistol, right? She is very adventurous and sort of spunky and and self-determined and is not going to kind of take no for an answer and so forth. I could not help but think of that great song by the Magnetic Fields, you know, that goes, Papa was a rodeo, Mama was a rock and roll band, I could play guitar and rope a steer before I learned to stand. That just seemed to sum up Helen to a T. You know, she just, she was... She had it all. She had it all as a kid back then. So tell us about her. Well, according to Mr. Brown and other folks that I've interviewed um, who had been told by their own aunts, uncles, parents, she was a sensation. She was so stylish and beautiful. Uh, more than one person I interviewed used the phrase, my mother or my father or my uncle said she was the most beautiful woman they had ever seen. And so that was something that kept recurring. And so we were happy to find the very few photographs of Helen that we could, because it does show you her mugshot is incredible. She's 17 years old. She's staring straight at the camera. And it's just an amazing example of a feisty, true grit girl. That's what you get with Helen. I think she's the prototype for Maddie Ross. Uh, and for listeners who may not be aware, we're talking about the Charles Charles Portis novel, uh, True Grit. Um, so she was born on a boat before World War I, approximately. Not sure exactly what year, but it kind of doesn't matter. Uh, she graduated from ninth grade, got married, ran off with a bootlegger, came back, and then what happened? <laughs> well, the funny thing is... After she married Buster Eaton and discovered that she did, didn't want to go that route, 
I found out from some folks here in Hot Springs, where I live, that Buster Eaton is buried in Hot Springs. So apparently his bootlegging career took him to the heart of Bootleg Central, which is Hot Springs, back in the 1930s. There's no telling. He could have been driving one of those, you know, old cars full of whiskey. But very little is known of of the length of their marriage. But she did go, uh, I believe it was less than a year. Uh, so maybe she married Buster when she was 16, 15, 16, and then within less than a year, went back to live with her father, her stepmother, and her sister on the houseboat. And she just loved it there. And uh, yeah, Buster was out of luck. (laughs) Well, it's interesting because you have this great description of a community, which is in in one way very tight-knit, and in another way privileges its isolation. And so you describe this wonderful detail of the houseboats up and down the river had calls that they would use. It sounded sort of like bird calls to where if an unknown person was approaching any one of the houseboats, you would hear that bird call from the houseboat facing the intruder to put all the other houseboats on guard, right? And so everybody's kind of keeping to themselves, but they're also interwoven up and down the length of the waterway. Yes, it was a a language because each one had its own distinct sound. And Mr. Brown had a, they were called quills. So his was carved of cedar and he had inherited it from his uncle Archie, who did live on a houseboat. And I found it interesting that these quills were made from the materials at hand from cedar And yet they were a different shape than the quills made in the Ozarks by uh, families that were hill people. Their quills looked more like pan pipes because I've done research on uh, some hill people from the Timbo area and they were 80, 90 years old and they would play the quill. So it's a very Arkansas thing, and the river people put their own spin on it, and it was a total sustainably sourced communication system, and it worked because they stayed hidden for a long time. Yeah, and you describe that for Helen and for her family, um, this was a matter of survival. It was a matter of self-sufficiency because life on the White River was not without its risks. You had bootleggers who were sometimes violent. You had transients who were passing through and you didn't know their motives. And as you write, the sort of principle of live and let live was not always heeded, was it? Yes, and it's interesting. You can, I never did have a newspaper.com account but you can Google on a site like that and pull up lists of people that got murdered on the White River back in the 20s. Uh, they just settled their differences that way. But what I found was interesting was one of my readers did additional research after my book came out because he's from that area. And he came up with this incredible story that I hope that he writes about it or somebody, because there were timber companies hiring 
mercenaries to patrol the bottomlands to prevent the river people from floating out cypress logs during high water. So basically they were gleaners. They were scavenging the leftover cypress logs, floating them out during high water because river people do not waste anything. And the timber companies hired killers to prey upon them. So that's a whole nother angle to it. But yeah, there were dangers there. Well, and those dangers eventually reached Helen's father, which is what set this story in motion. Tell us about Cicero and tell us about Cicero's end. Well, Mr. Brown always told me that his his father, who was L.C. Brown Sr., the sheriff's deputy for Arkansas County back during the Great Depression, the 20s and all of that, he said that Cicero and his father would have these wonderful philosophical conversations. They would constantly visit, talk. If his dad needed someone from the river to show up to answer a, a summons in DeWitt, all he had to do was get Cicero to put the word out. So there was a great communication, a great level of respect, mutual respect there. And Cicero, according to Mr. Brown, 3 a.m. the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. Was the type of person that the river people, the community, brought their problems to him to for him to settle differences so he was i guess he lived up to his name he was like a wise man on the river and he definitely taught helen spence everything that he would have taught a son so there was just a lot of respect i think that was the foundation of the relationships and that's that's what river people are all about even to this day a river person is as good as their word. And so many people will give you mixed messages all day long, but not a river person. This is a story of not one murder, but three murders, which are all related. The first murder takes place in December 1930, in which Cicero, Helen Spence's father, has an unexpected guest on the houseboat. Tell us what happened. Well, there was a lot of different accounts. So what I did was I took the most logical path, combining the most logical elements of all these different uh, newspaper accounts that had no bylines, whatsoever, and what Mr. Brown 
was received from the oral tradition passed down through the river people. So what happened was we do know that Helen's stepmother, Ada, was present when Cicero was murdered because Ada was then kidnapped by Jack Worrells and taken and, and uh, beaten and raped. When she later died for her injury, from her injuries in a Memphis hospital, but the thing that struck me was Jack Worrell's, nobody seemed to even want to prosecute him for Ada's death. It was all focused on Cicero. Maybe it was just due to the scheduling, but it seemed to me like she, she was not cared for by the system because she was outside it. She was a river, a river rat is what people call river people when they want to when drylanders want to use a slur, it's river rat. I'm trying to make the case that river people is, is accurate. <laughs> but what happened was uh, Jack Worrells shot Cicero, pushed him off the boat, and they actually did not recover his body until the following spring because it was in the winter and the river was too icy. So the body stayed down. So when it resurfaced in the spring, that's, uh, that's when he was actually laid to rest. But the trial took place in January uh, 1931. What was the conflict between them? Why would Jack Worrells have shown up on Cicero's houseboat, and why did it end this way? Well, since his, Cicero was a, a guide, a fishing guide, all the newspaper stories, everything that the river people understood at that time that was passed down through Mr. Brown had to do with this was uh, a kid from Rosedale, Mississippi. There was, a, there was a lot of back and forth between Rosedale, Mississippi and the White River Delta. And I haven't been able to, to quite figure that out. But he was from Rosedale. He was an outsider. So he was not someone that was known to the community. So the supposition was that he had come to Cicero on a pretext of a fishing trip and then was going to, to rob him because it was the Great Depression. Everybody wanted, wanted money. But now that my reader has done the extra research, there is a question that he could have been a timber industry mercenary sent to punish Cicero for gleaning, <laughs> gleaning the logs. I don't know. That's part of the mystery. Well, you have this incredible scene in which Cicero and Jack have kind of left on a boat and have gone out into the middle of the river. And then Ada and Helen realize he's gone. And Ada says, we need to go look for him. And so they follow after him. And according to your account, they more or less witness the whole thing taking place right in front of them, the murder. Yes, I knew that that was the most likely scenario based on how Helen reacted. She, uh, There were accounts that she literally lost her mind over her dad's death. It was such a heavy trauma. And so I had to find a way to present that 
based on what I was told from the oral tradition of the river people, how it happened. And then, you know, these crazy newspaper articles were so exploitative and they were never signed. And you just had to navigate them because some of them were very contradictory. Some of them were saying that Cicero had a party with this guy and they just got drunk during a party. Then why was Ada... Why was Ada beaten and raped and and essentially murdered as well? No, there was a beef. There was a beef going on, and it's just tragic. So Helen is, you write that she she's spared because Ada more or less tells Jack, oh, she's simple-minded, she doesn't understand anything. Her stepmother tells the killer she's... She's not worth anything. Don't pay any attention to her. You know, just take me instead sort of thing. And Helen is left on her boat after Jack kidnaps Ada. And Helen is sort of found later alone in shock. Who finds her? Do we even know how she gets off the river at that point? Well, there are several accounts uh, from the newspaper research I did, which was the archives of the Arkansas Gazette, the Democrat, the Memphis Commercial Appeal, the Pine Bluff Commercial, um, the DeWitt era Enterprise. And then there was uh, there were newspapers in Tuscaloosa and the New York Times and the Washington Post writing about this. But she was found by fishermen, fishermen downriver, and they pulled the boat in and, and brought her back to St. Charles. Yes. So the river was a very busy place back then, not like now where it's very mystical and quiet and eerie and spooky. I'm getting ready to go down to St. Charles in a few days, so I'm excited to see the river again. So they find her, and very quickly this becomes a, uh, a community event. Uh, Jack is apprehended. Um, he is awaiting trial. Helen is living with the sheriff because her father's been killed and her stepmother is in the hospital. Um, her sister Edie, who is a paralytic, uh, cousins sort of swoop down from Oklahoma once they hear the news and take Edie back with them because there's no way that Edie can survive alone on the river. As, as soon as the news of this incident spreads throughout the river people community, you have uh, the whole town or the whole sort of society along the river turning out for the the trial and for the hearings and so forth. This, this is very reminiscent of the case that we just explored last week with uh, the murder dog up in Brockport, New York. This is one of those trials that consumes an entire populace because it is so tightly woven in that area and everybody is uh, desperate to find out what actually happened and to see justice done. Yes, because one of the most amazing accounts of anything was when Mr. Brown was telling me what it was like as a five, six-year-old child on the courthouse lawn in DeWitt, the Arkansas County 
courthouse and people came from all over Arkansas County. It's a huge area. So it actually has two county seats because the river uh, cuts through and, and can rise. So you have to have a county seat in DeWitt and then there's a county seat in Stuttgart. So people just loaded up their buckboard wagons and came and, and their Model Ts and came. And it was almost like a, a festive thing because all the children were playing on the courthouse lawn and they were playing kickball and Elsie Brown remembers it you know how when you're older like like I am you can really remember your childhood things and he said when the gun sat when the gunshot sounded from inside the courthouse all the kids out on the the quad just froze and then all the windows in the courthouse, all the first floor windows banged up and people just started pouring out of the windows and pandemonium. So that was, I, c- I could really picture it when he told me. It was an incredibly cinematic scene, right? I mean, you have um, this sort of gathering outside, which was very eerily reminiscent of the Harvest Festival, the Reunion Festival, but also like the sort of the, the, the revival, the church revivals, you know, everybody's having fun, yeah. they're eating food, they're playing in the yard, and then suddenly, you know, this one sound erupts and shatters the entire field of joy, right? And then there's just panic, there's just panic. So what happened inside the courthouse. LC, he heard it, but he didn't see it. But then he saw the aftermath. What happened inside? I've I've actually gone down to St. Charles and looked at the oral histories that are on file. And they're also at the state archives. People were hiding under pews. There was this one kid at the time who recalled many years later that he was under the pew and he saw the blood dripping down from Jack Worrell's chest wound. And uh, and then there were all these accounts of how wow. the judge, ju- how Judge Wagoner, they, would, they were actually saying that he dove so quickly to get out of the way when she started shooting that he got his head stuck in the spittoon. Oh, I don't know. We... <laughs> We didn't we didn't try to portray that, but we do have spittoons in our courtroom scene of our documentary. But yeah, it was pandemonium. And but she didn't she didn't want to cause any pandemonium. She just wanted to take her river justice action, avenge her father, and then she handed the gun to Mr. Brown's dad and said, Here you go. <laughs> he killed my daddy. She's living with the sheriff, and yet she manages to smuggle a gun into the courthouse, stand up, point blank, draw, and fire. Well, that was something that I left out of the book because I thought it was too gossipy. But Elsie Brown swears up and down that it was the the DeWitt sheriff and his wife that she was staying with while uh, awaiting the Jack Wills trial because she was an orphan. They had orphaned her, or Jack Jack Worlds had orphaned her. So she was saying there, Elsie swears up and down that the wife of the sheriff gave her the pearl-handled lady's pistol because she felt sorry for her. No way. I don't know. I, I, left, I left it out of the book because I was like, I can't 
tarnish someone that I've never met. This was just hearsay. <laughs> this was hearsay. This was Elsie Brown saying, I betcha. I betcha she done it. So, yeah. 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 And there is a tradition that I found out much later of the muff pistol from the 1700s when Queen Anne in England and mm-hmm. women rode in carriages and whatnot. They would hide a s- small pistol in their muff. So, River people descend from uh, Great Britain, Wales, Scotch Irish, mm-hmm. uh, Black Irish, German, Italian, sure. all these mix of Celtic uh, peoples. And so it makes sense that that's a tradition that goes all the way back hundreds of years. I mean, not to go too far afield, but now you have me wondering um, what the actual. Uh, mechanism or risks involved in keeping a gun in one's muff are, you know, what if the fur lining interrupts the hammer as it's, you know, going for the firing pin, you know, what if the the powder report manages to actually catch the muff, uh, uh, you know, in flame? It just seems like, is it, is it really worth it? She pulled it out. (laughs) She did. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, she brandished it. I'm not sure I would take that risk. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I don't think a muff um, is your style. Probably not. Probably <laughs> not. I mean, you know, open open to trying new things, I suppose. But you know, she she plugs him what three or four times? Is that right? I mean, she gets a good few shots off before handing the gun over because justice in her mind has been done. Yes, and Mr. Brown told me after I sent the the manuscript to print that she shot him four times in such a tight pattern. You could put a hat over it. And I was like, LC, <laughs> that's perfect. Oh, so I'm sharing that lovely visual with you. She is not uh, just a pistol herself, but she knows how to use one. So you describe that at this moment, you call it pandemonium. The sheriff himself later says all hell breaks loose. And I guess what I admired so much about your account, um, Denise, is that you you did not really try to hide the the chaos, the sense of total and utter chaos in that moment from the scene itself, right? The facts of the matter are chaotic, as are the sources that you use to try to establish the scene, which is to say, the whole next few minutes of what you're describing here when Helen Spence avenges her father's murder by shooting the murderer in the courthouse. Extraordinary. They say the first casualty of war is the truth. And you have all these conflicting details emerged. She drops the gun. She doesn't drop the gun. She shoots him in the back. No, she shoots him in the front. Everybody has a different version of this. And you come along and say, you know... We're not really going to know with a capital K, right, on the knowledge. But this is the best kind of picture that we can form. And if something else happened, well, so be it. It was chaos. Yes, actually, because we're dealing with something that happened almost 100 years ago. And the fact that newspapers back then, there was no accountability. There was no byline used. So a lot of it was stuff that they were just using to fill a space. And I've worked in media, and I know that certain people still do that. (laughs) But it was amazing to me when I went 
and saw all these contradictory newspaper accounts, sometimes on the same front page of the same paper, they would contradict the details. Everything that Mr. Brown told me, because his father was there inside and Mr. Brown was outside and he received this information, everything that he told me was completely backed up in the oral histories on file with the state archives. So the people that were there from Arkansas okay. County, they backed up every single thing that Mr. Brown said, with the possible exception that someone embroidered on the truth about the judge getting his head stuck in the spittoon. It's a lovely enough image. I think we can hold on to it for now. Uh, <laughs> we'll take a little edit editorial license there. The last question that I have for you this week is returning to this scene Returning to this moment of drama is this kind of central tension that is present all throughout your book, which is the antipathy and the suspicion of the river people towards the drylanders. This kind of uncertainty between those two communities about what constitutes law and order and justice. And when this tension returns, what implications did that have for Helen in the immediate aftermath of her actions, okay, and for the community of river people at large? What did this mean for all of the river people going forward after she took the law into her own hands? Well, I could say that there was a, a separation that ensued because Helen, ever after this, she spent the rest of her brief lifetime trying to get back to the river. But there was this horrible anguish of separation because she had to be here. It was like a, like a probationary situation. Don't want to jump ahead, but when she was actually paroled from prison, the the grounds were that she must never return to the river. That's all she knew. That's all she wanted. That's all she loved. And it's heartbreaking in the book to read the words of her grandmother, who was Cicero's mother. Uh, just heartbreaking, uh, the separation from the river. And I, f I felt that because that's where my happy childhood was. So I think the river people themselves were traumatized and they continue to be traumatized to this very day by a government that destroys our bridges and burns our houseboats. And yes, it's happening to this very day. Well, we'll pick the story up there next week. Thank you so much for introducing us to this extraordinary community and these amazing uh, people. Denise, it's been a pleasure to have you this week. Thanks for listening. Our guest this week has been Denise Parkinson, author of Daughter of the White River, Depression, Era, Treachery, and Vengeance in the Arkansas Delta, available from ArcadiaPublishing.com. Join us next time for the second part of our interview and for the end of Helen Spence's incredible saga. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. A special thanks to our producer, Bill Huffman, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, production director, Bridget Coyne, 
and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To find out more about Crime Capsule and our dozens of other shows, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Maholovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows.